Bibles ready? We're going to bring the Word of God and and hopefully um, just bless your life. Um, there's just some good things in the Word of God. Lord always has. I believe this. God always prepares the table before us. You don't have to eat, but it's really going to help you if you do. He doesn't force feed anybody. He sets the table beautifully. We're coming up holiday season, you know. We, I'm sure you all had Thanksgiving and all the trimmings, all the good stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, it's laid out there. Man, it's awesome. We're going to do that again, you know, towards the end of the month again. We all get together, our family, and it just, you know, whatever it is you eat. Kay does a special lasagna. I mean, fix about one time a year. I'm not important enough to get it during the year. But no. anyway, about one time a year, set that out. And then got all the side dishes. And, you know, Heather brings something special. Carrie brings something that she does. And and uh, the kids and all of them, grandkids. And uh, adding into that now. And it's just, it's beautiful. But the house of the Lord, God prepares a table spiritually for us. Amen. So all the goodness and, and uh, the things that he makes. The scripture says we don't even know the things that God has prepared for us. They're so good, so rich, but they feed us spiritually inside of us. And so when we come to the word of God, that's where we're at. We, we believe God's going to do something on the inside. I want to go to a special psalm today. And again, may I remind you. Over and over and over, we have been taking from the Old Testament mainly the prophecies of David. And uh, I know that we don't look at him, the scripture scholars don't look at him as a prophet, but I think he is a major, major prophet in the Old Testament. So we've taken a number of things that he's prophesied, and this morning we're going to go to Psalms 22. And you all are familiar with that, so turn to that with us, Psalm 22, and we'll start in the first verse. I think um, that this psalm is probably the most powerful. Connects us in the greatest way to the Lord. This is, this is a, it's an amazing thing. 3,000 years removed from us now. 1,000 years from Christ, David, 28 generations Somehow, David, by the Spirit of the Lord, sees something that is so fantastic. So I want to go through this and, and, and read this. I've got to get my, my helpers. I didn't bring them up here this morning. So abide with me for just a minute. But um, I think, Ronnie, do you have it up on the... Amen. If anybody's nervous, you might as well go home right now. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. So, reading from King James Version, and I'll be reading from King James Version this morning, Psalm 22. I want to read excerpts of this psalm, so we won't read the whole thing. Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Lord, they're so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring. Verse 7. Oh, they see me laugh me to scorn, all that see me. They shoot out the lip and they shake their head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him and let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. This right here, the last of the 16th verse, they found this little portion of verse in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's this argument that that this psalm was written by the early church. But they found this piece of parchment in the Dead Sea Scrolls that says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They part my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, my strength. Haste thee to help me. I want to go to the 27th verse and then just read down to the end of the chapter. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. Well, this must be speaking of the Gentiles. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He is the governor among the nations. And all they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship, and they shall go down to the dust, or they and they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. Does that sound like every knee shall bow and every tongue confess? And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. For ye are a royal priesthood. Ye are a chosen generation. They shall come and they shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. Wow. I don't know where you could go to get more accurate prophetic word than this. And I think, you know, we're, we're, we're all on the other side of the cross, right? And he's, well, he's a thousand years back before the cross. So I want to go to Matthew, though, and uh, let's let's look at um, let's look at the fulfilling of of how this laid out. And so Matthew twenty seven and uh, verse thirty five. I'm going to read again. We got a little bit extensive reading here this morning, but it's good. It's really good. 
So the 27th chapter, 35th verse, and then we'll just read on down to, uh, I think it's the end, end of the chapter. Yeah, okay. And having crucified him, they divided his garments, casting a lot, that might be fulfilled that spoken by the prophet. (laughs) There it is. He is called a prophet. Not not by the writers and scholars. But he called a prophet of God. They divided the garments, my garments, to themselves, and they cast lots over my clothing. And sitting down, they guarded him, and they put up over his head his charge. It having been written. This is Jesus the king of the Jews, and John says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one off the right and one off the left of him, and those passing by blasphemed him, shaking their heads, and by the way, they were sticking out their lip too, saying, you destroying the temple and building it in three days, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocking said, He saved others. He is not able to save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe on him. He trusted on God. Let let him rescue him now. I mean, these words are verbatim of what David said. If he desires him, For he said, I am the Son of God. And also the robbers crucified with him reviled him, saying the same. Let's read down to verse verse 50, okay? And from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabbatani. That is, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? And hearing... Some of those standing there said, this one calls Elijah. And at once, uh, one of them running and taking a sponge and filling it with vinegar, put the reed, put it on a reed and gave uh, him to drink. And the rest said, let him be. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And, and crying again with a loud voice, Jesus released his spirit. Lord, we're going to try to do justice. All we know is what's recorded for us, Lord. But we're going to try to bring to life, Lord, your word by your spirit today. I pray, God, that you just work it in our heart, Lord. Touch our hearts. Touch everyone in this place. We'll give you the glory, Lord. Amen. Amen. Like most of prophecy, if you read in the Old Testament, I don't know if you've studied prophecy in the Old Testament or not, but like most of prophecy in the Old Testament, if you're going to get a futuristic revelation, it's going to be mixed with current matters. And so, 
we would like for them to come out and just say, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. That's what the New Day prophets do. They're wrong, most of them. They say it's going to happen. It doesn't happen. They're not prophets. They're not prophets. They're not even people of God. Somebody says, let's say the Lord, you know, this and that's going to happen. It doesn't happen. You can check them real quick. They don't know the Lord. They've got the wrong spirit. Something's telling them that, but it's not the Lord. But when the prophet of the Old Testament, when he speaks, and, and this, you know, I, we almost have to liken this to uh, the way Jesus did things in his teaching. And, but let's take Isaiah. Isaiah, he prophesied some things that were so glorious, so beautiful. Isaiah 9, does everybody like Isaiah 9? For unto us a child is born. I mean, we're in the season right now of all that happening, right? Of course, I don't know if Pastor Ryan is going to preach this year about it, but he was born, what, 1st of October, end of September. But we're in that season, a child is born, unto us a son is given. I love it, Isaiah 9. And then he goes on to say that the government will be upon us and the increase of his government. And then he says, he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Father of Eternity. But in that same chapter, he will also talk about Ephraim and Syria and Rezin and the Philistines and Manasseh and so on and so on. See, God's secret holy things aren't for just picking them up off the ground. You're going to dig. The treasure in the field wasn't laying out on the top. It was buried. If you ever get down to the rock in your life, you're going to dig. Jesus said, the wise man heard my words and he dug down to the rock. Because you don't get the things of God. You talk about Man, this beautiful revelation and, and some of the revelation that's going on today is so shallow, it's not even in Scripture. But if you're going to get the revelation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're going to have to dig a little bit. Salvation in itself, just salvation, the knowledge of I am a sinner and need a Savior is so simple that a fool shouldn't err therein, right? Say amen. A fool shouldn't miss that. But if you're going to understand the things of God, you are going to dig a little bit. And so we'll look at David now, and David is going to say some things, but, but in, this, in this, this same uh, setting, he's going to talk about some things that I believe, and so I script, uh, skipped over some of those scriptures because I believe some of those things have to do with him. He's forever talking about his enemies. You read the book of Psalms, and, and there's a lot of rejoicing in there, but a lot of it is about you have lifted me over my enemies. You have raised me up. I called unto you in my distress, and you healed me, and you helped me, and, and that's beautiful and wonderful, and we take courage and we rejoice in that. But, but David is afflicted from the Philistines. He's afflicted from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And so a lot of the things that he says is concerning him giving the glory to God. And some of the things in this chapter are that way. <laughs> the Lord himself. 
when he talks about holy things, when he talks about things that are not just little surface level things, common every day, when he talks about the deep things, do you know the scripture says there are deep things in God? And those deep things aren't crazy things. They're not what, you know, charismatic crazies are making out of them. But the deep things of God are the understanding of God, the revelation of Christ. That's the deep things of God. That's the treasures that we're after. Can you say amen? If we can just know Him better, if we can know Him more, if we can see other than wearing the bracelet that says, what would He do? You'll know what He would do if you know Him. And, and so uh, the Lord, His disciples said, Lord, why do you talk in parables? And he said something strange. He said, so that in hearing, they may not understand. What does that mean? I thought Jesus loves everybody. I thought he's just out there to save the world. No, he's there to save the hungry. He's not saving the world. He's saving the hungry. Those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the ones that he's looking for. Can you say amen? And so it's just this sweeping effort. You know, everything's coming with you know, uh, um, this uh, Carlton Pearson, who is, is now at death's door, used to be a, a preacher of the gospel and, and made some conversion uh, to a different doctrine. And his doctrine, finally, it really was just universalism. Everybody's going to get saved. Everybody's going to come to the Lord. And so, I mean, what's the point? If you believe that, then just go live like a devil. You have no obligation, just do anything you want to do, and everybody's going to come back, and everybody's going to be, even, even Satan's going to come back to restoration. Well, that idea might be good to live by, but it's not very good to die by. And so he's in the crux of that right now. But God's got some things that are hidden from the surface. Do you believe that? And so, David writes about a crucifixion that, let me, let me say this. This is before crucifixion existed. There was no death penalty called crucifixion. Nobody used it. It came in largely in the Roman Empire, but from what I understand, it was some before the Roman Empire. But crucifixion wasn't used for, for capital punishment. And so David doesn't have any idea what crucifixion is about. But yet he will give a defection of many of the things that he said, like piercing my hands and my feet. Of course, we know that the Lord was nailed to the cross, right? We know that they nailed through his feet and through his hands or his wrist where, where that tendon uh, circles back and would hold him. Through the hand, it would just rip out. But anyway, he's nailed through his hands and through his feet. We understand David didn't know anything about that. What would he know about crucifixion? They didn't nail people to stuff. But here by the Spirit of God, he gets to see just a glimpse and write about a crucifixion that he doesn't know anything about. So I believe that the scriptures that we read in the 22nd Psalm have to do directly with the person of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, which would be yet another thousand years from David's time. 
So I want to address the first verse. And I'm kind of sort of teaching this morning and emphatic teaching. Hope I don't bore you. Hope it doesn't get too warm in here. Everybody go to sleep. So the first verse can be taken in a few ways. Now, now, now listen to me. Anybody that's ever studied the Bible very much, or you've been around this doctrine, this, this is tricky. This is tricky. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On surface level, there's a lot of assumptions made. There's a lot of doctrines that have been made off of this single verse. And so we're going to deal with this for a minute. I'm going to tell you. And, and again, let me give you a disclaimer. I'm going to preach to you in the light that I have and the study that I have. And if you don't believe it, you're, you're free to do whatever you want to with it. But I'm going to give you what I have. Okay? Amen. So when we study the language of the Scripture, both the Hebrew in David's day and the Greek in the New Testament. There's some little turns, some little things that may make a difference to this verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, whole doctrines have been built on this. Denominations have accepted and been built on this. And, and here is what it says. God can't look on sin, so when Jesus was on the cross, he turned his back on him and forsook him. And I'm going to say to that, balderdash. I, I'm just going to bring the sledgehammer right down on that. And there's a few reasons why. The first one is, the fullness of the godness dwelled in him bodily. No one can separate Christ from Godness. Cannot be done. Can't be done in their day. Can't be done in our day. The fullness dwelled in him. Not only did the fullness dwell in him, but if you look at that scripture in, in or Colossians where Paul wrote that, it dwelled in him and dwells in him now. So it was perfect and acted, and it is now the indicator of who he is, the fullness of the godness that there is divinity, not Godhead. There is, that's the wrong word. The fullness of the divinity or the godness dwelled in him bodily. Now, if you don't believe that, then you don't believe in Jesus. The second thing is, this fullness could have not have departed from him because it also raised him from the dead. The spirit that dwelled in him raised his body from the dead. Now, let me just bring a, uh, a doctrine that came into the early church. I think it was about the second or third century. It was called... Patripassian, let me, let me get it, Patripassianism, kind of a long word. What it meant was, and some of the church believe this, is what it meant was when Christ suffered, that God suffered. 
But if you believe in a sort of a three-God system, the one God, He is inoculated from suffering. He cannot suffer. In fact, the second God, the Spirit, cannot suffer. Only the Christ can suffer. This doesn't seem equal to me. It doesn't seem like equal parts. It doesn't, but, but that's foolishness anyway. Because when Christ suffers, if the fullness of the Godness is in Him, God also suffers along with Him. He is the flesh of God. I don't know about you, but the other day I smashed my finger pretty good. And my whole thing was suffering. My mind was suffering. My body was hurting. And I was saying to myself, why did you do that, stupid? No, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to separate and just my body hurt and the rest of me say, oh, okay, I'm going to turn my back on you and walk away. No, no. So the idea of, of, of the Father, the Father, Spirit of God suffering along with the fleshly body of God in Christ Jesus does make sense to the gospel. Can one God person suffer and the other two not? God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. He did not vacate Christ at the cross, but God was in Christ from the moment of conception in Mary's womb until His last breath that we just read, when He gave forth His Spirit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. If he abandons this project in the middle, then it's just the man who is doing the suffering. It's just the man who has to pay the price instead of God himself becoming involved in this thing and God reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus. That's one view. Let me give you another view. Is a view of the translation my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Shabbatani. I don't know if you're aware of this, but that language is not Hebrew. It's not Aramaic. It's not Syrian. The proof is, after he had said this, they said he's calling on Elijah. These are Hebrew people. These are priests and elders and don't understand what he just said. So, is it okay if we look at the interpretation of that? They didn't understand it. Obviously, it's not Greek. The writers of the New Testament did not clearly understand word for word the Greek rendering of Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Shabbatani. One translator give this rendering. I want you to listen to this real close because you've never heard this before. I never heard it before, so probably a good chance you've never heard it before. He translated it this way. My God, my God, what have you left me here with? That brings a whole different light on some things. 
Then we don't have the picture of one God turning his back on another. What we have the picture of is Christ hanging on a cross with the dogs that have come past him around about. The bulls of Bashan, they've come to get me. The dogs have come past around about me. And what are they doing? They're mocking. They're jeering. They're laughing. I would say in our modern vernacular, they would be giving each other high five, hugging each other's neck, pointing, saying, look at there, look at that. Laughing, it says. Laughing at him. I want to ask you, what kind of a human being would look at a man that is dying in undescribable agony, writhing and crying in pain, lifting himself up on his, on his legs as high as he can go and pulling himself up on his arms so he can gasp and breathe. And then he falls down again. And now it looks like he's not going to be able to take another breath. He's bleeding profusely. He's not going to live through this. Even if he does come down off the cross, he is not going to live. His back is completely plowed. The scripture said like they plowed him with a plow. They have taken chunks of flesh. Blood is profusely running down from his back and from his head, from the thorns. Here he is. Bags of blood under his arm. He is stretching and straining just to get another, if he can get another breath. And they're laughing and mocking. What kind of humanity? I don't care what camp you're in. I don't care what your political beliefs are. What kind of a man could watch that? And not feel like they needed to do something to help the man. And they are laughing and mocking and jeering. Shaking their head. Oh, he thinks he, he's the son of God. Let God come down and rescue him off of this cross. Pointing and shaking their heads. And, and David said they're sticking out their lips. It must have been a sign of just total disbelief and disgrace towards the man on the cross. What kind of people have you left me here with? Jesus just sees around about him. I believe that on the cross he is in such pain, he's in such agony. David said this, my tongue is cleaving to the side of my mouth. I'm so thirsty. He said, I thirst. No one's there to help him. No one's there to lift him. No one's there to take his pain and relieve him somehow. That's not the design of God. Sin's an ugly picture. And what you see on that cross is God paying the price of sin. It's an ugly picture. I know you all have seen the, the Roman Catholic rendering of the little idol cross with the 
Christ figure on it, Enri over his head, and the little loincloth. That's not a picture of Christ. That's not a picture of Christ. Going through the greatest, most horrible punishment of death that the Roman Empire could dream up is what Christ went through. Couldn't be worse. Couldn't torture him worse. Couldn't be more agony than what he went through. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are leading a parade, mocking a dying man on the cross. I tell you, that's pretty low. Can you say amen? Doesn't get any lower than that. Doesn't get any lower than that. These were the most holy men of their day, leading a parade of mockery against a dying man. The third view of this verse seems to be the most fitting to me. Whether you want to look at the translation or the mistranslations or... I think I see it this way. Jesus is purposely trying to identify with the 22nd Psalm. See, everything he's doing on this day is already planned. It's already purposed. There isn't anything done by chance here. David called it out. They're going to take his garments. They're going to gamble over them. They did. The centurion soldiers gambled over his garments. They, they pierced him. They looked on him whom they pierced. They pierced his hands and his feet, nailed him to the cross. It's all there. What I think about this is that Jesus wants to identify this on, in the words that possibly they can go back in their mind that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. I think he wants to let them know, go back and read that 22nd Psalm. Now you may not understand Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabbatani, but you know the quote. You know where that came from. You know it's out of the 22nd Psalm. And so he wants to portray himself as being that Savior who David was talking about. Don't look for another to come. Don't look for this to happen again. You won't find him there at the whipping post ever again. You won't find him nailed to a cross ever again. You will either see him and find him or you will never find the Christ. So I think he's trying to, to identify so that they will know that that prophecy is about him. Another witness. Another witness. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17. You know this, but do not think that I am come to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to annul the prophets and the law, but to fulfill. Truly I say unto you, until even if the heavens and the earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the law until it all happens. Some years ago, we taught about the, the funnel effect 
of the Old Testament, funneling down. So I want you to imagine this morning with me a huge funnel. We're going to take every prophecy, we're going to take every word out of the Old Testament, and I want you, I want you just to realize that it's all going in a funnel, and it's only coming out in Christ Jesus. That's all. Everything of Old Testament is coming out in Christ Jesus. I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. And I think, you know, that there, there are people that want to live under the law now. They said, well, Jesus said he wasn't going to do away with the law. And so they want to live under the law. No, that, that, that's a different story. That's a different subject. What he's talking about here is that all the law and the prophets are going to be fulfilled in Christ. There isn't anything left. That's why you and I can't live in an Old Testament. We can look at the Old Testament, the examples of the Old Testament, and things God did in the Old Testament, and the greatness, some glorious, wonderful things there, but we don't live there because Christ was the fulfillment of everything that was said about Him. He was the total fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Can you say amen? It's getting a little warm in here, and, and so punch somebody, you know, make sure that they're, they're not sleeping right now. And so he's bringing all things into himself is what he's doing with Psalm 22. He didn't have to say that. But I believe he said it so that they would, they would see that everything, it comes into Christ. Everything funnels into him. Bringing all things into himself. Now, I've got something here that I know you haven't heard before. So if you want to, you can get your, your pencil out and just mark this right on the side of Psalm 22. It's okay to write in the margin of a Bible. They've been doing it for thousands of years. Nobody's been struck dead yet. Now, don't go across. Don't you know, scratch out the words of, of the Scripture. But, but it's okay to write in the margin. <coughs> Interesting. We know. That Psalm 22 is about the Lord. Amen? Amen. But there's one point that I don't want to leave behind. It's hidden. Another one of those things that's hidden. Can you say hidden? It's hidden. It's hidden. Where David said, Why art thou far from delivering me? The Hebrew word delivering me right there is the word Yeshua. You think it's about Christ now? Why is it so far off? It's going to be a thousand years from David. Why art thou, why art thou so far off from Yeshua delivering us? But yet he's depicting the cross and knowing he just doesn't know how far it is down the road. But he knows the one who's going to be on the cross. Now, if you don't believe, there are people that are still skeptics. They take the 22nd Psalm. They said, no, it, it was, like I said, it was written in the first century. Uh, it, was, it was not a real Psalm. And they'll do that because they don't want to accept the one. But David cleared it up and he said, it's Yeshua, friend. I want you to know that it wasn't another. Don't look for another. John the Baptist, don't look for another. His name is Yeshua. And his name shall be the key mark, the foundation of everything about Christianity 
it will be found in Yeshua. Can you say amen? That's the name we call Jesus. That's the English Latin rendering of Yeshua. But David, he knew somehow, somehow he got it together. Now I want to look at, at Galatians 2.20. Having said all of this, I don't want to bore you and keep you longer than I should. But I want to talk about Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. You want to say it with me? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of, you know, one of those favorite scriptures of ours. Galatians 2.20. Powerful. Powerful. Thank you, Paul. Paul speaking to the Galatian church. The thing that Paul does mostly, he doesn't talk about himself very much. He does at times. He said, you, you, you want to talk about, you know, having credibility? He said, I was a Jew. I was, according to the law, I was faultless. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Zeal like you cannot believe. So he did talk about himself a little bit, but mostly to the church, he's going to use the plural form of personal noun. Us, we, sometimes they. But he's talking to the church at Galatia, and they have got to a place where they want to go back into the Old Testament. And they want to live under the law. They want to live under circumcision and that, that be their guide. And Paul ha has got to tell them, no, we're not. And repeatedly he'll say, we do not live under the law. We're not there. We're living in Christ. And as he's going through this with this church, he wants to give his personal testimony. And I think this is it right here. I am crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul didn't get on the cross with him. However, it is possible, listen to this, it's possible that his life overlapped the life of Jesus. Paul was probably there during the Passover. All the Jewish men, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He probably was there. And it is a possibility that he saw Jesus Christ on the cross. It's possible that he was one of the Pharisees that was mocking, shaking his head. And so this vivid picture to him, and I'm just saying it's possible. His life did overlap. We don't know for sure. There's no record of it. But he says, I am crucified with Christ. He could have said a number of things. He could have said it differently. He could have said, I belong to Jesus. I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Christian man. No, his testimony is, I am crucified with Christ. The importance of this is... You can't start 
a Christian life without this. You can't just jump on the Christian bandwagon. You can't just do the call words that come out of churches. Raise your hand and repeat a prayer. There's something that has to happen in your life that's much greater than repeating a prayer. I am crucified with Christ. So he tells the church at Corinth, we preach Christ and Him crucified. He tells the church at Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what he means by the gospel of Christ is he means the life, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of that, and I'm going to continue to preach that. It doesn't matter who believes it. It doesn't matter who is with me. I'm still going to preach this. I want you to know that the cross is an imperative message to Christianity. You cannot have Christianity outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people trying it. There's a lot of people saying, I'm just going in on the goodness of God. He just wants to help people and love people. And, and God's love, you know, is just so, so good to everybody. But my friends, you cannot find salvation outside of the cross of Jesus Christ and Him being crucified on it. Can the church say amen? And then he says, but I live. I'm crucified with Christ. But I live. Christ didn't live. But I live. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Paul is still speaking of his personal faith. You understand? I don't think he even realizes that he's declaring a truth for all the church for, for, you know, the rest of the time. I think he's given his testimony. This is where I'm at. I want to tell you something, brother. You're going to come to a place in your life that you're going to realize that you are either crucified with Christ Jesus or you're not. Circumstances may come in your life. There's at, finally at death when I lay my head to rest, we said this morning. We sang a lot of songs about the cross this morning, didn't we? Because I'm crucified with Christ and nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ it is that lives in me. So I don't go fleshly to the cross. And, and I'm not getting on the cross with Jesus. Move over, Jesus, and I'll get on the cross with you. That's, that's not what's being, being uh, the thought that's being given here. But rather it is that he's dying to himself, his flesh. And I think it absolutely has to do with what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. Because you take up a cross for only one reason. There isn't a cross to go to a picnic. There's not a cross to go to a rock concert. There's a cross to die at. And so take up the cross demand is I'm going to die with Christ. And so we've said it different ways in in, in but Paul says, that, he says in Romans 8, he said, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. Jesus said the same thing. But if by the Spirit you put to death the practices of the body, you will live. Now, now we're going to get to us. Now we get to us. Saying those words, I am crucified with Christ, that, that's easy. That's easy stuff. 
It's easy for me to get up here and say this this morning. What's hard to do is Monday morning, take the man out of the bed and be crucified with Christ. That's, that's, it's just easy for me to get up here and speak it this morning. It's easy for you to say, yes, yes, that's a good one. Good one, Pastor. Nice. That's really good. But what's hard to do is tomorrow morning you get up and have to crucify that man, that flesh, put to death the practices of the body. I said this a few weeks ago, and, and Paul later said, Who shall deliver me from the power of this, from the power of death that's trying to reign in my body? Thanks be unto God, Jesus Christ. But if you want to live, Christ lives in you, you have to die to the flesh. And so, if we die with him, we will live with him. And a lot of people have thought about this too, uh, putting their head on the chopping block at the end day. That they're going to be, uh, uh, die for the cause of Christ. Now, let me, let me just defunct that real quick. If you don't want to live for him, you also don't want to die for him. You're not laying your head on the chopping block. It's no different at the end time than it is right now. And so that's not what God is requiring of. Some Christians across the world are going through, they're losing their lives. I mean, I don't know if we're privileged here or not. Say, so we're so privileged with freedom. Well, I don't know if that's a privilege. Because you can jump on the wagon and off the, just jump on Christianity wagon anytime, jump back off. Not there. If you call yourself a Christian, you're in jeopardy. But that's people who give their actual, give their body, their life. But you and I put the practices of our body. I think this is America. This is a Christian, American gospel that needs to be preached as alongside Christ, up there dying and heaving. It's not pretty. It's not easy. It's awful. It's a, it's a horrible picture. I'm going to plant my cross right beside him, and I'm going to die with him somehow because I've got to die to this flesh in order to live in Christ Jesus. I was going to say nobody said this thing is easy, but that's not true. They're saying it all over the world now. This is an easy thing. God just loves you. Just jump on the love wagon and away you go. No, no, no. I really don't think that that's what God's got for us. Can you say amen? So, in the life which I now live. I love this statement, don't you? The life which I now live. Everyone in this building lived a life previous to Christ. If you've come to him, you lived a life that was different than the life that you're living now. Say, how was it different? I wasn't in Christ. I didn't care about it. I did what I wanted to do, and the practices of my body took over, and I just did whatever my body wanted to do. But the life which I now live, this is the most precious thing that you can have. The life which you now live. Not your old life fixed up. Not, not some reformation in your life. But a brand new life in Christ Jesus. The life I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. So we have this picture of both before and after. We love the flesh. We followed the flesh. And now, the life which I now live, I live in the faith of the Son of God. Somehow, I can't do it on my own. I can't make it happen by myself. 
But somehow, when I get on that cross that's by Him, and I die with Him daily, somehow He gives me the strength. He gives me the ability to walk my life out in Christ Jesus. If you think you can do it, just don't crucify the flesh and you'll find out how good you do. Amen. This is a life under the umbrella of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Wow. Years ago, I, I did this thing. I think it was about marriage, but it'll work here. I think I was teaching some marriage fundamentals or something. And I drew this picture of a, this great big umbrella. And some of you remember that. And under that umbrella was right at the top heading. You got, you got the Lord there. You got Jesus there. You got, and then coming down through that, you've got, you've got ministry in the church. And, and then we have our families. And then we have, you know, our children. And, and, but we're all under this umbrella of the Lord. The problem is it's raining outside of the umbrella. And you get outside of the umbrella, you've walked out from under the covering of the Lord. This life which you now live is not a life out from under the umbrella. He bought you with a price. And He brought you under His covering, under His umbrella. And He doesn't want you out there anymore because you're going to run into the same trouble that you had before. But if you stay under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, and that's where we're wanting to stay, Christian believer, Christian follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that our desire is to stay under that umbrella of who He is and let Him drive our life and move our life and mold our life to become in the presence of Him. Can you say amen? Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The life which I now live, I'm not trading it. I'm not trading it. I've run into some things in my life where I stood there. Everything I had put my hope in, everything I thought, crashed down at my feet. And I had to stand there by myself and say in my heart, I am crucified with Christ. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. I love our church. Do you love each other? Oh, man, we are a blessing to each other. This fellowship is just awesome. I mean, there's something about this fellowship that's just unique. But even this fellowship itself is not it's not going to get me through. It has to be I am crucified with my Christ. With my Lord, I'm crucified with Him. Nevertheless, I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I choose to live this way. Can somebody say amen? Oh, pastor, it's hard. I No, you can see it that way if you want to. I see it as a great covering over my life, over my wife, over my children, over my grandchildren, over my great-grandchild, Nip. Oh, yeah, he's under the cover. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're under the cover of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. To the fundamentalists who believe that one prayer, one raising of the hand, and that dogma 
salvation that they get. Sadly mistaken. To the Pentecostals who believe that they are immune to the power of the flesh. Sadly mistaken. None of that matters. I'm crucified with Christ. That's what matters. My own personal testimony within inside myself and in my being is that I am crucified with Christ. And I get to walk it out every day in Him. Isn't that beautiful? You get to walk this life in Christ Jesus. Finally, David saw the pieces and parts of the crucifixion. We see it fully revealed. We understand it absolutely from one end to the other. And I think if we resurrected David out of the tomb, he'd say, you people don't understand what you have. All we could do was look and say, how far off is the coming? How far off is the Yeshua? But you all know him. You all have him. I'm going to say this morning, can you, yourself, don't look at me, don't look at anybody else. Can you say of yourself, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself over on my behalf. Wow. That's pretty strong and pretty straight. But if you're in church for any other reason than that, you've missed the boat. You'd be better served to go to Disneyland. At least you have some fun there. You're only going to have torture sitting in the house of God and not crucifying the flesh. Somebody say amen. But when you settle the question. I've known people that have gone to church for years, but finally they settled the question. Finally they realized, no, hey, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be crucified with Christ Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I'm following Him. Can the church say amen? And that's what we believe. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise right there. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not perfect. That's why i got to be crucified with him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you knew a long time ago how you would bring salvation about. You knew that. Because in the beginning, Lord, in the beginning, the logos of God, with God. You understood your plan, your purpose for mankind. But we're not just out here just going through our years, getting to elder age and passing away. That, you didn't design that. What you designed is that we would walk this life with you. And so, Lord, help us to realize we're crucified. Put to death the flesh and come alive in Christ every single day of our life. We thank you for it, Jesus. Amen. In church, say amen.